there was a global conference of experts who were discussing different religions and trying to figure out if there was anything unique about the Christian faith. And the debate went on for some time, and they couldn't really agree on anything until, of all people, C.S. Lewis walked into the room. He asked what was going on. And on hearing that they were discussing uh, Christianity's unique distinctive, Lewis responded, oh, that's easy. It's grace. (laughs) Well, we hope that you're coming to a deeper appreciation of God's grace and the things that stop us operating in grace. Hopefully, you're seeing that God is the one who's able to root out guilt and shame and fear and pride and, and so that we can be motivated by love, which is what his heart is for us. So as that happens, the key question becomes this. How can my life really count for eternity? In other words, how can I bear much fruit? Great questions. In this sixth session, we'll be looking at how walking in God's grace is the key to living a fruitful life. And we'll see that, like just about everything else to do with grace, it works precisely the opposite of how you'd naturally expect it to. We all want to be fruitful Christians. I met a guy at a conference who wanted to be fruitful. And what he told me was that he felt God had told him that he wanted him to start a Christian ministry. And he'd been looking uh, at Freedom in Christ Ministries and how it had grown so quickly in the UK. And he said to me, I want to know how you did it. (laughs) I said, I don't really know. It just kind of happened. If God wants you to do something similar, he'll do it. Just stay close to him, cooperate with him. He didn't look very happy at the time uh, with my response. And actually, the following week, he sent me an email uh, asking essentially the same question again, but in a very detailed way. He said, I want you to tell me step by step, what must I do uh, to start a ministry like Freedom in Christ? Well, I honestly did think, um, how could I help him? Uh, I I could have said some practical things like, well, find a board, get some godly people together. Um, put a basic strategy together. But what I really sensed was that this was a guy who felt that his value was going to come from doing ministry. And he was trying to make it happen in his own strength. So I sent him an email back saying much the same as I'd said when we met, uh, adding that it's when we persevere through difficulties that God really seems to prepare us for future ministry. Well, I never heard from him again. Well, you know, that man's question that Steve was referring to is the same question many of us may be asking or we're thinking about ourselves as we seek to be a fruitful disciple. How can I bear fruit and keep on bearing fruit throughout my whole life? Well, it's important to know how, through the rest of our lives, our works can count for eternity. Remember, earlier in this course, we looked at Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that believers can either build on the foundation that Jesus had laid with wood, hay, and straw, and that's going to be burned up and count for nothing, or with gold, silver, and precious stones. I mean, that's what we want, I'm sure, to have that happen. And we've also seen that it's not so obvious just by looking at what somebody's doing as to whether those uh, works are done from the right motivation or not, because it comes from our heart. That's what God's looking at. Now, let me ask you a question. Imagine for a moment that you received a letter in the mail. It was an invitation from Jesus to have coffee with him at a local coffee shop tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. And you were sure that it really was from Jesus. How would you be feeling between now and then? Would you be excited? 
Uh, would you be scared? Would you be curious? Would you be nervous? I know what I'd be doing. I'd get out the steps to freedom in Christ. I'd go through the whole thing, make sure there was absolutely nothing that could be brought up in my life. But anyway, when, when you think about sitting across from him, what would that be like? You know, would he be drinking decaffeinated coffee? No, that's not the issue. <laughs> what might be the first words out of his mouth to you, do you think? What would his face look like, his expression? How would he look at you? you know? How you answer those questions depends a lot on your view of Jesus, really. Now, I know for much of my Christian life, I felt I was letting God down. Um, kind of like my parents' favorite expression. Uh, because I was such a mess, uh, I wish I had a dollar for every time my parents would say to me, shape up or ship out. That was their favorite expression of me. And so, because of that, especially when I was a young Christian, I could easily imagine the Lord Jesus taking a sip of coffee, looking me straight in the eye as he set his cup down, slowly shaking his head and saying something like, shape up or ship out. When are you finally going to get your act together and get it right? Well, I hope you've realized through this grace course that that's not what Jesus would say at all to us. Now, I know it's a little risky trying to put words in Jesus' mouth, but based on what I see in the Bible, here's what I imagine the first words out of Jesus' mouth to you or me would be. Ready? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. See, that's what Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus. In just about every one of his letters, he starts out with something like that. And that's not just the first century equivalent of, hey, how are you? It's not a greeting so much as a blessing. Will you receive that blessing of grace and peace right now? Grace to you. God's undeserved favor and blessing and delight and welcome. Welcome to the family. You belong. And his shalom, his peace, his fullness, wholeness, completeness. Will you receive that now? I believe that's what the Lord would want you to know. And it's when we walk in the grace and peace of Jesus that we find the path of true fruitfulness. So how can we bear fruit for Jesus, fruit that will last? Well, some of his most important words coming near the end of his earthly life, shed quite a lot of light on this. You'll know them well, I expect. John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean. There's a pun there, which means pruned as well. You're already pruned, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you ever venture into a vineyard, I can assure you there's one thing you're never gonna hear. 
You're never going to hear the sound of branches like grunting and groaning, straining to get those grapes to pop out of them. And there's something I guarantee that you're not going to see. You're not going to see a branch that's disconnected from the vine for whatever reason, with healthy fruit growing on it. Branches don't bear fruit because they try really hard. And neither do we. Branches that are not attached to the vine do not and cannot bear fruit. Those are two inviolable laws of the vineyard. So looking at that passage, what is the branch's one responsibility? See, our natural reaction would be to say, well, its responsibility is to bear fruit. No, it's not what it says. The branch's responsibility is to abide in, stay close to, remain with, be at home in the vine. The gardener knows one thing, that if he makes sure that the vine is healthy and that the branch stays connected to the vine, he's going to get some fruit. So here's a key principle. Christians who focus on their need to bear fruit will put themselves under a law-based system and become fearful and anxious performers, with the resulting guilt and shame if they fail and pride if they think they succeed. But Christians who simply focus on abiding in Jesus, making their home in Jesus, enter into what we call the grace-rest life, where paradoxically they bear much fruit. And I believe there's a progression that we go through in our Christian life uh, in terms of who Jesus is and our understanding of that. First of all, he is our Savior. He's always going to be our Savior, and that's the starting point for every Christian. But it's not enough just to know Jesus as Savior. So somewhere along the line, we have maybe a Romans 12, 1 and 2 experience, and we come to know Jesus as our Lord, our Master. We come to the place of surrendering to him everything in our lives. But I believe it's not enough to know Jesus simply as Savior and Lord. There's a third aspect to our relationship with him. And that is we need to come to understand that Jesus is our life. Colossians 3.3 says, Christ who is our life. And once we come to understand him as our life, then our role is to stay connected to him, to abide in the vine. And Jesus beautifully modeled that for us. Now, he's the son of God. Second person of the Trinity. Everything that has been created has been created by him and through him. But when he chose to give up his glory in heaven and came to earth, he took on an attitude that's really pretty amazing and in some ways shocking. This is what Jesus said. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. John 5, 19. In verse 30 of that same chapter, he added, I can do nothing on my own. Now, even though Jesus was God, numerous times Jesus made it abundantly clear that he was not living life or ministering out of his godness, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. He lived life in full dependence on the Father in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit. Why was he doing that? He was modeling for us how God wants us as fully alive people to live knowing that we can do absolutely nothing apart from him, but we can do all things through him who strengthens us. How many of you have heard that Martin Luther once wrote in his journal that he had so much to do at one time that he had to get up three hours earlier than usual to pray? How did that make you feel? <laughs> Guilty, probably. Did any of you try to emulate him? 
I did. How long did it last? For me, it was about 40 minutes. <laughs> How many of us feel we should be praying more? Probably all of us. Let's just try and understand the principle, really. Let's see how Jesus approached prayer. It was a lifestyle for him. Like Martin Luther, Jesus was often up early, it would seem, uh, usually walking the mountains, talking to his father. And you get the impression that this is not a, a formal, dutiful prayer life. I imagine there were long times of silence, as you often get between people who are just comfortable in each other's presence. An intimate love relationship between the father and the son, because the son, you know, well, sons just rest in the assurance that their father loves them. They don't have to work to earn it. So their work is motivated by love for the father. Now, God probably isn't asking us right now to get up three hours earlier to pray, but he may be really, really delighted if we were to come to him just because we wanted to, even for 10 minutes. And if we did that and we started to do it more and more, well, we'll probably get hold of the truth like Jesus did and like Martin Luther appeared to, that without God, we can do nothing of any lasting value. And so you may well end up getting up early to pray, not out of guilt or the need to fulfill a duty, you know, focusing on, I've got to do three hours of prayer. That's the focusing on trying to bear fruit. But you would do it because you love spending time with God. And paradoxically, you will bear fruit. Jesus is so kind and compassionate with us, and he makes us an offer to all who are overwhelmed by religious burdens and crushing religious expectations. And it was this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, of all the words Jesus could have used to describe himself, he chose gentle and humble. Isn't that amazing? The Son of God. What an amazing statement of grace that is. Can you imagine any other God giving that kind of an invitation? No, I can't. See, God doesn't want us to wear ourselves out and live with religious burdens on our shoulders. He wants us to find rest from all that kind of stuff. And so he genuinely offers us a yoke that is easy and a burden that's light. Not a yoke of slavery, but a yoke of freedom. Now, as we've seen as Christians, there's absolutely nothing that God forces us to do. Yet the picture that Jesus gives us when he offers us rest is that of two oxen plowing a field together. Now, that looks like hard work. <laughs> Doesn't look a whole lot like rest. But So what's he talking about? Well, we don't want to give you the impression that the Christian life is supposed to be something where you just kind of float along singing lovely songs and hearing God's voice all the time and all that sort of stuff. The rest that we're talking about here does not mean lying around doing nothing and waiting for Jesus to come back or something. It's an internal rest in the midst of working with Jesus in his harvest field. And it's based on faith and dependence upon God. See, again, our focus is not to be on bearing fruit but on remaining in the vine, abiding in Christ, cultivating our trust relationship with Jesus. And when we do that, there's a sense of rest from our works, but God's works get done. Let me remind you again of what Jesus said right at the end of that passage in John 15. He didn't say, apart from me, you can get along pretty well. Nor did he say, apart from me, you can do 
most things. Uh, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, you can get out of bed, eat breakfast, brush your teeth, get dressed, go to work, make a living, raise a family, grow old, retire and die without Jesus. Millions of people do that every day. So what did Jesus mean when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Simply that you can do nothing of eternal value, nothing that is gold, silver and precious stones, unless you depend completely on him, unless it's from a position of resting in his ability. See, God has always wanted his people to understand that rest is key. Go back to creation. God worked for six days. Uh, he rested on the seventh day. What about Adam? Just the opposite. What day was Adam created on? The sixth day, right? Probably right at the end of the day. So for him, he was created, he went to sleep, he woke up, had his breakfast, and the first full day for him was a day of rest. And there's a sense there that there is a principle. See, everything he needed was on hand, there was nothing to worry about, he rested, and then God put him to work, taking care of the animals and the garden. And the principle that God wants us to work to is we rest and then we work. It's not really meant to be that we work and work and work and work and get absolutely shattered and then fall into a weekend or whatever and rest to recover so we can do the same again and then fall into a weekend and rest to recover. It's meant to be the other way around. Out of rest comes fruitful ministry. So if you wanna bear fruit that will remain, if you wanna have an impact on the planet that lasts into eternity, if you wanna come into alignment with God's kingdom purposes for your life and your family and your world, then it has to start with resting in the true vine Jesus, who is our very life. There was a season in my life when I had I'd lost my, my, my job. Before then, I didn't know what God was doing. I, I would pray, I would, uh, after praying and fasting, and I would pull in my CV and push everything, every door. When I look back now, I understand what it was, but it was more like striving. But at that point in time, I didn't know it was striving. I thought, um, this is my faith with works in it. I got to a place of taking a step back and sat down and sort of like despairing, really, and said, well, God, why? You know, you have that why question. God, I've done everything I can, etc., etc. Why? You know, but that day, that's when it clicked, when he was saying to me, uh, I'm trying to bear fruit with my own strength. I recently finished recording an album. There are times I'm like, oh, I would like to write a song about this. But as I sit there and I want to write about it, it's like there's just no flow. There's no, not, it's not even a matter of no inspiration. It's like, okay, it seems like it's just not, it's not happening. But what I've now learned is that if I can get it done by the end of the day, I say, well, God, I'm not gonna let this to my joy and peace. So what I've found is that sometimes something that can take me, when I plan and look at it, I think, okay, this is gonna take me four hours. But with God's grace, I don't know how it works. It just, you end up doing it in less time and it just flows. Whether it's, I'm just trying to hit a wall and just get it going. For me, what grace is, is uh, God's enabling me to do the things that I'm supposed to do at the time I'm supposed to do them. So it's like an, uh, an added strength and power, if I can put it, to equip me, to, to enable me. I guess it's an enabling power for me to do what I have to do. Now, how can we tell if we're relying on our own strength to bear fruit? 
We saw in the last session that pride boils down to putting our confidence in something other than Jesus. So pride is a sign that we are relying on our own strength. There's a related issue too, control. The guy who was desperately trying to start a ministry, he was trying to control events. Now he'd probably heard accurately, I suspect, from God that God wanted him to start a ministry, but what was his role at that point? It was simply to remain in the vine. In a sense, to sit back and let God do what God would do, not to try and bring it about himself, but then if a door opened, to walk through it. Well, let's be honest for a moment. In the flesh, apart from the Spirit of God, every one of us is a controller in some way. I remember back in 2006, I was appointed as president of Freedom in Christ in the United States. Now, I wasn't all that excited about that role uh, because the ministry is in a very tough position at that time. In fact, if I had not been standing outside of a church in Iowa, I would have been in a corner somewhere curled up in the fetal position when I found out that word. Um, So later that summer and into the fall, interestingly enough, I started to experience uh, episodes of rapid heartbeat. When it happened, I'd try to go to the doctor and have him look at it, but it would always get better right when I got to the doctor. I remember one time it started to beat, and I got in my car and raced to the emergency room of the hospital. That's what the doctor told me to do. And I ran in there and said, my heart is beating like crazy. And they got me into this chair and this wheelchair, put all these uh, equipment on me and monitors and all that stuff, and tuned in and said, your heart's perfectly normal. I couldn't get it to do what it was supposed to do when it needed to. Well, finally, it went totally ballistic. 195 beats a minute for three and a half hours. The ambulance came to get me and they tried about every chemical on the planet to slow my heart down. I was diagnosed with what's called ventricular tachycardia or VTAC. It's a potentially very dangerous condition. And they finally had to cardiovert me, which is you know clear with the paddles and all that stuff to get my heart back to its normal rhythm. And so the doctor decided to put a defibrillator pacemaker into my chest, and I still have that. And while I was waiting for that operation, the ministry pressures around me just mounted. I was so frustrated, I wasn't able to do anything about them. You know, Uh, everything was out of my control. I didn't like that. I remember yelling at God while I was waiting for my operation. I don't have time for this. (laughs) The Lord knew better. As I lay on my bed, frustrated and angry, stewing over eight major crises in our ministry, the Lord clearly spoke to me. Why don't you give them to me? What a radical concept. (laughs) So I kind of imagine that like eight tennis balls resting on my chest, representing the eight crises. And I took one, tossed it up to the Lord. I'll take that, he said. So I tossed another and another until all eight of them were in his hands. See, nothing had changed circumstantially at that moment, but I'd changed. Within 13 months of that point of surrender and brokenness, the Lord had resolved all eight of those crises. Isn't he a wonderful God? Sometimes we can also try to control people. See, the Pharisees, we've already seen, were zealous for God. But in effect, they were trying to win favor with him by imposing their strict interpretations of the law on everyone else. 
even to the extent that some of them were sneaking around trying to catch people in the act of adultery. <laughs> I wonder if there was a cue for that job, I don't know. Uh, and then bringing them out to be punished. The elder brother reminded his father of all the good works he was slaving away at. He was effectively trying to control the father, using his good works to make the father put him in his will, eventually. People who realise that apart from God they can do nothing actually don't need to control either events or people. They can rest in the knowledge that their Father God can be trusted to take care of those events and those people and those circumstances that are outside their realm of, the, of control. They know that he really does work all things together for their good. That's Romans 8:28. See, what pride and control are saying in effect to God is, I'm the one that can make this happen. I'll do it my way, in my time, in my strength. They're a declaration of independence. They keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's provision and blessings because we never give them the opportunity to act. So here's the big question then. How do you enter into the grace rest life? Now, I remember a time during a, uh, a time of deep soul searching and heart searching and longing for the Lord. I, I remember a time of prayer uh, when as as more or as much as I can ever recall desiring God, he's what I wanted. I wanted everything of him and everything that he wanted for me. And I remember praying, hoping that my prayer would open sort of the gateway to a new and fresh spiritual dimension with God. And this is what I prayed. Lord, I repent of everything in my life that displeases you. I reject everything that doesn't look like you or reflect your glory and goodness. And when I lifted up my head, I sincerely expected that somehow I was going to be utter, ushered into a new echelon of spirituality or something. And I can remember the impression on my heart from my Heavenly Father being loud and clear. My son, it's not that easy. God's right, of course. It isn't easy. See, we have a natural inclination not to abide in the vine and rely completely on Jesus, but instead to rely on our own strength and abilities. It's kind of like as long as we think we still have one more brainy idea, one more trick up our sleeve, uh, one more thing we can grab into our basket of tricks, you know, and, and pull it out, that's what we're going to rely on rather than the Lord. So, that's not the way of rest or fruitfulness. So, what is the way of rest and fruitfulness? I want to come back to King David again, because he's a really good example of someone who had learned these lessons this is my favorite psalm, Psalm 131. It just has three verses. He says, my heart is not proud, O Lord. Not proud. My eyes are not haughty. And this is what he says is the evidence for that. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. But I have stilled and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. So he said he doesn't concern himself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but it's like, hang on a minute, this is the king. It's like every day people must be coming to get him to sign death warrants, uh, ask him, does he want to go and attack the Philistines? Or, you know, there's some other army coming up against them, how does he want to handle it? So what does he mean that he doesn't concern himself with great matters or things too wonderful for him? Well, the Hebrew word behind that is it has a sense of he doesn't walk among. And it's just that he recognizes that if he thought he could do it in his own strength, it would be pride. 
He's recognized uh, that the antidote to pride is dependence on God, which involves stilling and quietening his soul. See, deep inside of David, as there is deep inside of me and deep inside of you, there's a part of us, a very human part, that we would call the flesh, actually, that cries out constantly, like a child on breast milk, feed me now. Sometimes the fear causes us to cry out, or shame, uh, or guilt, or whatever. Sometimes it's the urges that come from temptations. I just say, come on, feed me now, feed me now. Or because we want to control events and people. There's a kind of restlessness in us. So how did King David learn this? How did he learn to still and quieten his soul? Well, he doesn't tell us in the psalm, but I think we can make some assumptions. He was anointed as king when he was still a young man, but it was years before it actually happened. And he found himself then thrown into a nightmare scenario. He spent years in the wilderness in fear of his life as King Saul tried to track him down. He was hounded by armed men. And during those times, he learned that God is real. He learned that God can be trusted to keep his word. He learned that God is good and that God has plans to give him a hope in the future. And if God said he was going to do something, no matter how unlikely it seemed, God did it. So just like King David, we need to learn to still and quiet our souls, to come to the point of complete dependence on the Lord. When we feel guilty, we need to lay our sin at the foot of the cross and walk away. When we feel ashamed, we need to recognize that we are new people with a new name. When those fleshly urges come on strong, we need to know that they only produce bondage. And we can choose not to give in to them because we're new creations in Christ. When fear comes, we need to remember that only God has the right to be feared and he's for us. He's on our side. When we're tempted to pride, to know that we can do absolutely nothing apart from Jesus, it's all about choosing the truth over lies. So how does God help us deal with the pride and control that he so hates and get us to a point of grace-filled rest? Well, I wish I had good news for you. It really is good news. It just doesn't sound like good news. It's not easy news. His cure is to bring us to a point of brokenness in order to teach us the truth that we are absolutely dependent on him, that we really can do nothing at all that's of any eternal value on our own. Now think about this for a minute. How do you feel about being completely dependent on someone else? Think about the possibilities of old age or infirmity. Yet Jesus wants us to learn to be dependent on him. And in his grace, he works on us as gently as he can, but it can still be painful. There's a process of cutting away and hacking back our fleshly self-centeredness, our self-reliance, that all of God's people, no exceptions I'm afraid, all of God's people must go through, at least if you want to bear fruit. Jesus called it pruning in that John 15 passage. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 calls it discipline. And he tells us to be diligent to enter into God's rest. It's not easy and it's not much fun. In fact, it's downright painful, which is why it requires diligence or endurance, hanging in there. But it is the gateway to the grace rest life. And it really is more than worth it. So let's take a closer look at that Hebrews 12 passage. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. 
For those whom the Lord loves, notice that word? He loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Amen to that. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Boy, what wisdom is in that passage. Well, when I look at that, the word that comes to my mind is ouch. <laughs> I don't think I like that word scourges. I mean, scourging, that's what they did with Jesus with that whip, that cat of nine tails before he was crucified. Is it possible that the measures God uses on us are that strong? Yes. Why? Because the strongholds of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, self-satisfaction, well, selfishness, run very, very deep. They require strong measures by God to remove them. So God's cure is to discipline us, always in love, to bring us to the point of brokenness, that we would share in his holiness. He wants us to see, and we need to see, how utterly futile, how utterly futile our own efforts are. And we need to know that not just in our head, but in our hearts. And the only way that happens is God deals with us and disciplines us in our lives. We need to know that apart from Jesus, we can't do anything of eternal value. See, Jesus wants to bring us, knowing him as Savior, knowing him as Lord, and knowing him as what? Life, our very life. Now, this may be surprising to you, but the writer of the Hebrews even told us that Jesus had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. Hebrews 5.8. There's no shortcut, folks. But when we understand that difficult situations in our lives are actually helping us to grow and to bear much more fruit, we can learn to embrace those tough times and endure them, even though we won't enjoy them. I'd like to share with you some of what God has done in my life to help me deal with pride. Um, I was on the leadership team of a small church at one time, and a lady on the team too was struggling, really struggling, because she felt that God had given her something that she needed to share, but it was a difficult thing to share. Um, I wanna read you what I wrote in my journal at the time. Last night at the leaders meeting, Sandra came. Turns out she's had a very specific word from God that has caused a real agony and upset since Sunday. The main point was that God is grieving over our church because we are hard hearted. She then had very specific things for each of us. Mine was having a holier than thou attitude, <laughs> not being vulnerable, making people think they cannot be as holy as me. Apparently this is causing discouragement to Christians and putting non-Christians off. Well, I remember being quite shocked by that. It wasn't really what I was expecting. But of course, being a good British Christian, I mumbled something like, well, um, thank you for that, Sandra. <laughs> I can't quite see that myself, um, but I'll, I'll certainly go and pray about it. And I then looked round the room at my fellow leaders, certain that they would say, oh, no, 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 we can't see that either, Steve. But I couldn't meet any of their gazes. They were all looking like that at the floor. <laughs> I thought, okay, all right. No one felt the need to jump in and modify what Sandra had said, even slightly. Let me read you a little bit more from my journal at the time. Zoe and I talked this evening and concluded that basically we've been brought up to believe that we can handle things. 
And indeed, in one sense, we can. As capable people, we tend to rely on our own resources. As a result, we hardly ever ask for help because we don't think we need any. We don't let people get close because we don't think we have any needs. I am ready to offer advice and wisdom, but don't seem to need any myself. Hmm. It then says, I don't think we yet realize what an offense this attitude is to God. Tonight we repented and prayed that God would smash the strongholds of pride, independence and self-sufficiency in us. Well, I remember that what happened was it led to a period of weeks or months, seven or eight weeks maybe, where I just became increasingly aware of just how proud I had been. It was the bad breath thing that Rich mentioned, however many sessions ago it was, that everyone else uh, was completely aware of it, but I wasn't. Um, and I just became more and more aware of it. And I found that I would just spend oh, hours sometimes just lying flat on the floor before God, just feeling awful, <laughs> but praying. Um, let me read one last little section from my journal from that period. I've realized that my relationship with Jesus is very weak and that much of my Christianity has been about making me feel good, building myself up in the eyes of others, etc. I feel totally weak and helpless and happy and excited. Steve, really appreciate your honesty and transparency there. You know, one of the things that's interesting, it's kind of strange, but when you come to the point of realizing your own weakness and helplessness, like Steve was talking about, and you throw yourself on God's mercy, it somehow feels like the place you were always meant to be. It feels like coming home, like the younger brother felt when he returned and fell into his father's arms. And you know what? Every time there's a breaking of our stubborn self-sufficiency, selfishness, it's like a door to a room in the house of our life that had been closed and locked and bolted. All our lives suddenly becomes open to the fresh breeze of the love of God. It's like it swings open and Christ's presence floods into that place. Pride, however, literally does come before a fall because God opposes the proud. James 4.6 says that. So God in his love for us intentionally and relentlessly unleashes events in our lives that overwhelm us. They take us out of our comfort zone into realms where we find ourselves beyond our ability to cope. Now, why does he do that? Because we never get to experience the power of God in our lives until we've brought, been brought to the end of ourselves. You know, we'll never know that Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we've got. And whatever breaking instrument that God uses in our lives, and he tailor-makes them for our specific situation, whether it's a loss of reputation or misunderstanding or injustice, health issues, job stresses, relational conflicts, financial difficulties, whatever it might be, God, in his goodness and love, is seeking to drill down into those areas of pride and control in our lives and eradicate them. Why? He wants to strip them away because we've made those places substitutes for him. And God, in his persistent love for us, always sets out to woo us back to himself. He wants to rescue us from all those attachments that would draw us away from himself and restore the intimacy of our relationship with him. That's why he's doing that. 
You know, the Apostle Paul had been given some amazing insights into the truth of God that easily could have made him proud, yet he found a depth of the grace-rest life that few of us have attained. And this is what he says. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Hmm. Then he goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Strong. Wow. So here's the moral of the story. If you want to be proud of something, be proud of your weaknesses. <laughs> I was good. I, 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 I could talk a good game. I've been through this Christian walk in, uh, in Northern Ireland for a long time, and I knew the right things to say and the right buttons to press. Uh, and the code words, so that people would know that I was uh, a full-on believer. No, I'd love to be able to say that... Um, I chose to surrender, but I, you know, I, I, I didn't. I, uh, I, I, I was brought to the place um, on the carpet in the dust, um, whereby um, I had nothing left to offer to God apart from my surrender. I suppose what happened, and this is in God's mercy, as I see this now, this was the worst time of my life, but it was the best time of my life, because this was the moment in which God, I feel like, took away the props in my life. Um, I, it just seemed like everything in my work just went haywire at once. And um, I then was immensely stressed about that. And I uh, had panic attacks about that. And I, um, I wasn't sleeping. Uh, all that then you know, really led me to a situation in which I felt I had nothing more to give. And there was nothing, nothing then I had. So I couldn't say, I couldn't say to God, here you are, here's my life. You know, in this lovely present day, because like it was broken in my hands, and it was that point I just had to say to God, "Here it is, I've broken it." So what happens now? Well, guess what? God showed up, <laughs> and it was the beginning of uh, a long process in which um, there were many difficulties. I always knew you had to have a quiet time, and but from but from here on in. Um, I needed God. I, I think I always would have been kind of a, I'm here for the sermon kind of person, you know. Uh, whereas now a lot of that was, you know, I, I, I wanted to meet with God and just, and just thank him, you know, because um, having, having come back to him um, and presented him, I say, with this broken um, life, uh, um, it, you know, he was, he was there. And in a way I've never experienced before. I mean, so the question for me, you know, was what, what's my bit and what's God's bit? And my bit was to hand over my life to God. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't as complicated as I, as I thought it was, as I thought it was. Yeah, there was, there was a, a man who had a dream in which he was looking back at his life with Jesus and he saw it as footprints in the sand. And most of the time, 
there were two sets of footprints as he and Jesus walked together. But in the times when he went through great difficulties, there was just one set of footprints. And he said, Lord, why did you leave me on my own in the hard times? Well, said the Lord, my son, I didn't desert you. I thought it might cheer you up if we both hopped for a while. <laughs> I'm sorry about that one. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> now, eagles are huge birds. Uh, they can have a wingspan of over nine feet and they can weigh over 25 pounds. That's about the same as a medium-sized dog, such as a cocker spaniel. The weight, not the wingspan, obviously. <laughs> now, if you've ever seen an eagle, you know that they fly to a great height. You can watch them just circling up and up, and they actually, you can watch them till they disappear, they go so high. Now, imagine the energy needed to get a bird as big as a cocker spaniel that high. It's huge, or is it? Again, I'm sure you know how eagles get to that height. They simply jump off a high place, find some rising warm air and circle in it. They have some kind of clever mechanism that means that they just stretch their wings out and they can lock them in place. So there's practically no energy required to get them to those amazing heights. It's all done by the warm air. Isaiah said, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. See, part of this resting is waiting for God. If you like looking for the warm air, the idea behind the Hebrew word here that's translated as wait is something like to gather together, like you'd gather strands to make a rope that they're bound together. And there's a sense that as we wait on God, we are kind of bound together with him. What a great picture of how God wants us to be with him. Mm. As we lock our wings and rest in him, mm. he renews our strength and we rise up. Mm. Now just in practical things, just in little ways, we can wait for God. You've got a decision to make. Well, rather than just making the decision, build some space into the decision-making process. Allow God to have some time to speak to you. Delay it a few days, maybe a week, and, in, and just bring it to him in prayer. Invite him to contradict your plan if he wants to. Let me share with you, if I may, another breaking experience from my own life, um, this time more recent. I am wired to do. I love having loads of things to do. I can quite easily run on pure adrenaline. And at times when I have lots of things to do and uh, I run on adrenaline, eventually I get stressed, I get overloaded, and if I'm not careful, I crash. But if I don't have enough to do, my soul shouts out. It feels aimless, it feels unsettled, wants to do things rather than wait for God or rest in God. Well, God's been teaching me about this gently and maybe not so gently uh, because I've needed that. And he blessed me with a really difficult period, maybe the most difficult period of my life so far. It lasted two years or so. Uh, Zoe, my wife, collapsed in the middle of the night with no warning. She just felt a bit weird, got up to get a glass of water and just collapsed in a heap. Um, I thought she died at one point. I couldn't revive her. Um, called an ambulance, they took her to hospital. And we then embarked on a variety of different tests to try and work out what had happened and what might be wrong with her. I've seen her brain. 
I now know it's there. It looks slightly like a sheep's brain, but it was very large and clearly, <laughs> clearly functioning extremely well. One by one, they ruled out all the obvious nasty things, which was a relief. And it would have been fine if she'd returned to normal, but she didn't. Um, she was really tired. She often felt very ill. She had a headache much of the time. And then um, it would seem that she'd get better and better and better and better very slowly. And then she'd relapse. Not that she'd lose consciousness again, but she'd suddenly go incredibly tired. And then she'd go up and up and up again and then relapse. Um, and it got to the point where she could barely walk 50 yards to the post box um, outside our house. Maybe she'd manage that every two or three days. Or again, every couple of days, I might be able to take her out in the car just for 20 minutes. That's all she could take. And apart from that, it was sitting in a chair where actually she really burrowed into God and waited for him. She was relentlessly cheerful, which was a blessing to me. Eventually, we got um, a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. You might think, great, we've got a diagnosis. Now we know what to do with it. But actually, it's not a great comfort. It's a very debilitating illness. And the doctors have precious little success with it. Now, during that time, I was having to keep the family going. Our two girls were at home. Um, they were doing important exams and stuff like that. Uh, it became quite stressful, but in a sense, I just thrived on all the doing. I would get a Saturday where I would cook 14 meals in a morning. They were the same meal. Uh, <laughs> I'd freeze it and stuff like that. Um, I would just, you know, I would tick things off my list and I'd be going shopping and I'd be doing this and I'd be doing that. So in a sense, I thrived on it in the wrong kind of way. But then when it came to ministry, Christian ministry, I had to cut back on the time I was spending in the office. I had to cut back on practically every speaking engagement. And the thing that was good, but at the time I felt it kind of um, piqued my pride a little, was that during that time, the ministry just kept growing without me. It's like, <laughs> how could that happen? <laughs> and during this period, one of our intercessors, we have a lovely bunch of people who pray for us, one of our intercessors very tentatively sent me an email with something that she thought God might just possibly be wanting to say to me. And let me read it to you. Uh, this was it. Am I not your hope? If there were no ministry, would I not still be your hope? your joy. If everything was stripped away, would I be enough? This is a hard question for my beloved. So many believe they need to be my slaves in order to please me, when it is their hearts I brood over. It is a hard question. If everything was stripped away, would Jesus be enough? Well, I was too busy to consider it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, but one of the speaking engagements that I had kept during that period was a trip to Portugal with another guy from our team. And we went out to meet uh, a pastor in northern Portugal called Samuel Paulo. He was interested in potentially getting Freedom in Christ started in Portugal. So we'd gone out to run a couple of introductory conferences. Well, meeting Samuel, it was like me in terms of somebody who rushes around doing lots of things times 10. He was leading a really busy church that was just about embarking on some completely impossible building project, which is now being completed, of course. Um, he was running a charity, sending, I think it was school materials out to Africa. He was running a charity in his hometown, helping to feed those who um, hadn't got money. Um, and he was just clearly a guy where every minute was taken up doing something or other. And so, 
When he took us back to the airport early one morning, uh, I just said, Samuel, it's been fantastic to be with you. I've really enjoyed it. Please, will you not feel in any way obliged to start Freedom in Christ in Portugal? I can see what you're doing. I can see how much you've got on your plate. And I just don't want you to feel any sense of obligation to take any more on. And he said, don't worry, Steve, I won't. And he told me his story. I was really, began to be very, very, very involved in many things. And, you know, I was involved in church planting. I, I was involved in an in a African effort really to help Africa and with resources, missionaries and all that. You will see me running around, you know, you will see me doing a lot of stuff for God, you know, a lot of good things. But um, my heart was not really in the, in, the right, in the right place, you know. I was collapsing. I don't know if the ministry was collapsing, but I presume so. <laughs> yeah, the marriage was not in good shape, by sure, you know. God spoke to me and said, that, am I enough for you? Which point I went all tingly and I just thought, I've heard that somewhere very recently. <laughs> And it's like the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. They are now, actually, as I tell you about it. Yeah. And then he said, you know, he was honest enough, and he said, I said to Jesus, not really, Lord, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew immediately that my honest answer was the same. No, Jesus. That's probably why I'd kind of shoved the whole thing to the back of my mind. I didn't really want to go there and answer that question. And he told me that he worked through it to the point where he, he could say, yes, Jesus, you are enough. And on the outside, to look at him, as I described to you, he's incredibly busy. But you know what? What he's doing is so fruitful. It was an impossible building project. I haven't got time to go into it. He showed me the plot of land, the money required from a small congregation. It was impossible. It's done. Um, it was impossible for him to get Freedom in Christ started in Portugal on top of everything else. Do you know what? Of the 12 or so countries that are in the process of translating our Freedom in Christ discipleship course, he was the first to do it. I'm not less busy, but uh, I feel God is really the center of my ministry. And I don't have to, to work around, you know, to run around, but really, really stay in God's grace and really believe that what I'm doing is enough. I don't have to do nothing more. And I'm comfortable with that, you know. And I feel God is really blessing me, you know. At the same time, I'm seeing more results now that I was seeing when I was, I think I was working more. Zoe was ill for two years, um, but she made a complete recovery very quickly at the end of the day. It was a God thing. And both of us in that time learned a real deeper level of dependence on him. And we look back on it, and I've asked her a few times, I said, you know, if we could change it, would you change it? And I think we both agree that actually we wouldn't. It's left us both with a real deeper sense of dependence on Jesus. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, of course. And I know that if the ministry, what I do, were taken away from me, it would be really hard. That'd be really hard. I'm not trying to pretend it wouldn't be. But the bottom line is, I think I could say at that point, this is hard, Jesus, but yes, you are enough. After all, everything is going to be taken away from us at some point. Absolutely everything. Your money, your career, family even. It's going to be taken away. The only thing we're going to be left with is our relationship with Jesus. The bottom line is, yes, Jesus, you are enough.
through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. You know, I love the fact that what has happened in the ministry that Rich and I are involved in has so clearly been God's hand. You know, the bit that I've seen um, in the UK, I know that I could never have done it. I know I couldn't have done. I know it wasn't me. And having seen all that, I know there's no point in my trying to make things happen. I know I can't do it. I'm helpless, I'm hopeless in one sense. But I also know that regarding my future fruitfulness, the sky is the limit. Because there's a wonderful corresponding truth to I can't do anything in my own strength. And it's this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what is the fruit that God wants to see in your life and mine? Well, we tend to think of it in terms of outward ministry, the things we do. And indeed, there are works that he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. And they are incredible works. Some of them may seem impossible, but his strength will be made perfect in our weakness. Well, no matter how impossibly big God puts things on your plate that you say, I can, there's no way in the world I can do that. If God is behind them, they're all completely possible. But beyond that, God is even more interested in what we are inwardly than what we do outwardly. He looks at the heart. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of those are character attributes. And the beauty of how God works is that as you develop these character attributes inside, they will flow over into the things we do outside. You know, in Matthew chapter 16, we see a crucial moment in Jesus' ministry where God reveals to Simon Peter exactly who he is, who the Lord is. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Amazingly, stunningly, Peter then actually tries to cor correct Jesus and tell him he's wrong. Think about that. You just had it revealed to you, this is the Son of God, God himself, and then you tell him that he's made a mistake. I mean, how arrogant can you get? So Jesus rebukes him very severely and continues with his train of thought. Uh, he's just told him, remember, that he's going to die. With the image of his future death on the cross in his mind, this is what our Lord says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right now, I'd like to invite you to make a radical core, that's what the word radical means, at the core, a root level commitment to God. Would you be willing to lay before him your entire life at his feet? If so, join with me in prayer at a moment. Father, I lay down absolutely everything at your feet. My health, my past, my present, my future, my money, all my property, my family, my ministry. I reaffirm that I'm willingly making myself your bond slave. I surrender to you, Jesus, as my Lord. You're the boss of my life. You're in charge now. And I recognize also that you are my very life. Amen.
See, this kind of surrender is, is a holy ground moment. Can't be forced. Must be a free decision of our will, made not because somebody's telling us to, but because we really want to. And thankfully, you don't have to make this decision in your own strength. But you can come to him in complete weakness and just collapse in his arms, letting him know that you're absolutely dependent upon him. You know, that's the place you were meant to be anyway. That's what it means to come home to Jesus. He'll always be there for you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he'll never take you beyond what you can bear in him. But he will fill your life with amazing good gifts. What an awesome God we have. You know, it's crucial that in the midst of that, that we do take responsibility to do the things that God tells us to do. He's not going to do them for us. Only we can renew our minds to the truth of God's word. God will not do that for us. And we have that wonderful strategy of stronghold busting to help you do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined the phrase cheap grace to describe someone who wants to enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom of God without any true heart discipleship of taking up our cross and following Christ. By now, we hope that you realize that living in grace doesn't lead to laziness or going soft on sin. If someone has that mentality, it's a good indication that they are not experiencing the true grace of God. See, true grace isn't timid or lukewarm or soft or complacent. It's robust, it's virile, it's liberating, it's strengthening. Let's remind ourselves what God's grace means to us every day of our life. He paid an unimaginable price so that your true guilt could be paid in full to leave you completely innocent. By his grace, the verdict on you has been declared forever not guilty. An amazing exchange has taken place. Jesus became sin on your behalf. And in return, you became the righteousness of God. You are holy in the depths of your being. In fact, you're a whole new creation with some wonderful brand new names. Shame is gone. You don't have to have any unhealthy fears anymore. By his grace, you really are safe and secure in the hands of Almighty God, and he loves you. At any time, you can come and cast yourself on his mercy, knowing that you can do nothing in your own strength, but that he can do everything is a great place to be. And remember that because of this grace, you don't have to grovel your way into his presence. You don't even have to turn your eyes to the floor, even though he is holy, holy, holy God. So here you are, a son or daughter of the living God, standing there, dressed in your rich robe, your ring of authority, your sandals, and God himself is looking at you. To see what you've done wrong? No. There's just one reason that God is looking at you. It's because he finds you so wonderful. He delights in you. He looks with eyes of pure love. And you say, well, God, what do you want me to do for you? And his response, I imagine, might be something like this. Well, there are things for you to do, but what I really want is you. So as we come to a conclusion, 
we know that God's grace has saved you. You've received your introduction into his grace through faith. We're now to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is by God's grace that you stand. And by the grace of God, you are who you are, and I am who I am. And I believe God's word of blessing to you today is grace and peace. Well, does it sound like grace is important to God? Yeah, clearly it is. In fact, you may not be aware that the very last words of God to us in his scriptures provide a fitting conclusion to the grace course. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Amen. Amen.